We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 today. And if you'll turn there to Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse number 1. And uh, we have in, uh, in the past several months finished 1 Corinthians, going verse by verse through uh, books of the Bible. And uh, it helps us to think, create a biblical imagination and uh, to learn how to live and think biblically. So that's why we're doing this this way. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, says, God, who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, thank you so much for this uh, great portrait of our Savior, and we pray that you'll help us as we uh, think about these uh, powerful, inspired words to internalize them and to be worshipers, and we pray for your help today by your Spirit as you bring to light your word for us. We need you. We pray for cleansing in every way, God, in our in our lives from sin and any obstacle and barrier it creates to us being able to hear you. And God, we pray that you'll speak to us clearly now and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When you uh, look at Hebrews, the idea of what it contains is pretty obvious in the title of the book, Hebrews. It, uh, it is a way of helping people in the first century and us, obviously, believers, to understand uh, how the Old Testament was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ and his advent. And so for them, they were a persecuted people, the uh, Christians in the first century were a persecuted minority because they uh, had against them the still existing religious religious uh, element that the Old Testament had implied before Christ's coming. And so it was a struggle. Imagine that all your life, your practice of, of faith had been that you understood the temple worship and you understood the sacrifices and the uh, rituals of uh, uh, blood sacrifice and all that was contained in the Old Testament way of believing and thinking about God and all of a sudden the Messiah comes and he and Jesus created conflict in his coming he created in the minds of some of these people who had been worshiping a certain way their whole life a, a understanding of contradiction they're like wait a minute uh, can this really be the Messiah even though there were signs and evidences that were clear that had been spoken when Jesus came, the people that committed to believe in him found themselves in a situation where, you remember what Jesus said? He said, I, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. Do you remember that? He said, because I'm going to put people in the same household. He says, they're going to end up against one another. And that's really what happened when Jesus came. People in the same household, some rejected Jesus some received him, and even in family systems, it created division, this idea of who Jesus was. And so when the writer of Hebrews speaks, he comes to bring uh, for people who are struggling with the idea of the, what this meant for them. He says, I'm, I'm coming to bring to you clarity about how Jesus fulfilled all the things that the Old Testament said would, would be true about Messiah. 
So he came, uh, the writer, and we don't know who it is in Hebrews. Uh, all you can do is speculate because it doesn't say in the letter who the writer is. And, and so we'll just let that be what it is. You know, the, we know it's inspired by God, and we know that the context was that it was written to give clarity to people who were struggling with the idea that I may reject Jesus and go back to what's comfortable because it was easier back then. I didn't have this conflict in my family. I didn't have this turmoil in my spirit that I have because of my commitment to Christ. So there was a temptation. And and the writer is saying to them, Jesus, whatever you're tempted to go back to, whatever was in your background back there, Jesus is better. Whatever it is that's a diversion for you away from who he is, he's better and preferable. And he fulfills all the things that God wants us to experience. I have a commentary by a writer named F.F. Bruce who said the whole argument in Hebrews is conducted against a background of Old Testament illusion or uh, not illusion, illusion. It's alluding to all the things that the Old Testament spoke. Considerable uh, familiarity, he says, with Levitical rituals is implied. So when you read Hebrews, as we will, and study through it verse by verse, you see that it speaks back to the, the law. It speaks back to sacrifice. It speaks back to temple worship. But what it says is Jesus completely satisfied everything that God was outlining for us and what those things predicted and foretold and foreshadowed. And so that's what we'll see as we keep going through this letter. He says, insistence that the old covenant has been antiquated is expressed with a moral earnestness and drive home repeatedly in a manner which would be pointless if the readers were not especially disposed to live under that covenant. In other words, what he's saying is the target audience originally was Jewish people who had come to believe in Jesus and now were experiencing persecution and pressure and a temptation to say, is it worth it? And so his expounding on Jesus is to say to us again and again, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it. And so as we look at what the scripture here in this passage says about Jesus, that's what it it calls to mind for me. I think, too, we'll see in Hebrews chapter 12 particularly, I love what it says there, looking unto Jesus. Or really, we would say keep looking to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Here's what I find sometimes for uh, people is a struggle, is that we become critics of what's going on around us in Christian community, and we become uh, resentful about you know problems that are happening, and we forget to keep our eyes on Jesus. And he's going to say to us, you keep your gaze fixed on Jesus. You keep your attention dialed into who he is, and he's never going to uh, let you down. He's never going to disappoint you. Will people disappoint us? Yes, they will sometimes. But Jesus will never disappoint us or let us down, and we keep our eyes on him. So first in this passage that we've read today, we see that Jesus is God's uh, last and best word to us. Jesus is God's last and best word to us. When Jesus came, in, as it's uh, narrated in the Gospels, and we see Jesus comes, what we discover in Jesus is that all that God was saying got completed in Jesus. You remember how John put it in his gospel? He says, in the beginning was what? 
the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made his home with us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, he says in John chapter 1, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, it implies God is speaking, and God has spoken. And so in Jesus, that's what we find is God's, what God had to say came into its fulfillment and culmination in Jesus. And so I love that. So what, one thing you see in the Bible is that God speaks. God hasn't left you wandering, and God hasn't left you wondering, has he? Your life doesn't have to be pointless or aimless. There's a purpose that God has, and he's been gracious enough to reveal that purpose to us in Jesus finally and fully. So you don't have to. You may choose to wander around uh, through life. You may choose to wonder what it all means, but we don't have to because God's made it clear to us in the things that Jesus said and who he was and what he, he did. If a person wanted to summarize the message of the Bible, I think you could find it in this very uh, passage in Hebrews one one, where it says God, who uh, in various times and ways in times past spoke to us by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us through Jesus, his son, and all the things that we're going to look at about what the scripture says about him. You, you could do worse than saying that verse right there pretty much summarizes the idea of the Bible, that God from the very beginning spoke through a people and spoke through prophets and experiences that we're going to talk about. And then lastly, he spoke through Jesus. Jesus came, God speaking. God showed up in the flesh and spoke and lived and, and made clear to us what was on his heart and his mind. So the prophets in the Old Testament would often say, thus says the Lord, right? They would say, God is speaking. God speaks. And so thus says the Lord, they would say. And when we are reading the scripture, we, here's what we get because God chose to speak. Assurance. The Bible, I love how First uh, John five thirteen says, These things have been written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have everlasting life. Assurance. When the Bible speaks, that's what it gives to us. Again, I don't have to wonder. I know what life means. I wonder about myself sometimes, but God has been clear. God has said Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of what you need because of the alienation caused by sin and and the death that was the result of that he came to uh, overcome the curse of sin so we can have when the bible speaks one of the things that it gives to us is assurance peace that's what comes through assurance is peace the the idea that i know I love that, uh, again, how that says that. These things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's peace. That's assurance. That's certainty. It's not arrogance because we didn't make it up. God spoke and said, listen, this is what, who, who I am and what I've, I've done for you in Jesus. When I read the scripture, one of the things that I know because thus says the Lord is that I can have guidance too. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, God gave to us, and it says, uh, 
Don't lean on your own understanding. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. What is that? Guidance, leadership from God. So that I know, again, I'm not just uh, going through uh, this world without direction. I know that there is a pathway that's right and God will guide us into it and has done that in his word. I know that in Scripture, because the Bible says, thus says the Lord, there's help. Do you need help sometimes or all the time? Like all the time, right? And the Bible says that in Scripture, because God has spoken and, and spoke clearly and finally in Jesus, there is help. There's comfort. In fact, one of the names or the realities about the Holy Spirit is that he is the comforter. And in Scripture, in God speaking to us, there's comfort that we have. It comes through the peace. It comes through the assurance and the guidance and the help. There's enlightenment. That's what the Bible says, says about the Scripture. It says his word is a light to our, our path or a lamp to our path and a light to our steps. So there's, there's insight that comes from God himself. There's direction and instruction in the Bible. We need that. We need to know specifically, like not generally, but specifically, what does it mean to be a righteous person? What does it mean to be right with God? And the Bible says specifically, here, here's instruction, here's direction. There's correction in the Word of God. Because are you always right? No, of course not. There are times when our lives divert into pathways that where we shouldn't be. And, and the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he corrects, and scourges every son uh, that belongs to him. And he says, if you're lacking in discipline, then you're not really God's. So the, in the scripture, what we find, because God is speaking, is that there's also correction, whether you like it or don't. Sometimes we don't like, well, most people don't like being corrected ever. But we need correction because we tend to go the wrong way. And thank God he loves us enough, just like a parent does, to correct their children. And, and the Bible says that's a reason for gratitude, not a reason for resentment. Like it, it, as a child growing up, you know, sometimes parents could be severe, but the, the ideal for a parent is to love a child enough to go, look, I don't go in the road. You know, we don't want you being run over by a car. We, we're going to care for you. We're going to correct you and help you. And the Bible says that's what God does in speaking to us. Not only that, but he rescues us. He saves us. That's the his purpose and his experiences for us is to rescue you, to take you out of the turbulence and, the, and to take you from the place where you're in danger and to bring you into safety. And he does that through Jesus, the, that Jesus Christ made a, a pathway for us. And he says, I am that way. I came to rescue you. He came to seek and to save what was lost, he says. In Scripture, we find that uh, because he's, God has spoken, there's sanct the possibility of sanctification. That's progress in holiness. We think about, we talked about this in our men's group this past week, that uh, God says, I've given to you everything that pertains to life and godliness. 
So it's more than just the idea that God stamped a ticket for you to go to heaven, you know. That, that there's also a life I'm trying to live every day with people. And he says, I've given you everything that pertains to life. I've shown you. And, and it's a process where God is continuing to mold us and to make us into his image that so consequently I can, through my life, be a witness. And you can be a witness through your life. That's what God's intent is, that people will... You remember what in Antioch they first called people Christians and what it meant was little Christs? That's what it meant. Like these people are like Jesus. He is multiplying himself in the, in the world, and that's us. We're his, his uh, people, his children. And he, he has put his imprint on us, but he wants it to be clear, and that's sanctification. And Jesus said when he spoke in the Bible, he said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So through his word, him speaking, he says, I'm making you, I want to make you into the people of God so that people in the world say there's a people of God. There are people like God in the world. That's his in- intent. So when we think about God speaking, that he spoke through Jesus, but he rebukes through his word, he teaches, he convicts, he blesses and builds up, he prepares and assists in countless ways. And so when we think about uh, the Bible says, here's a premise uh, that about it, about life. God speaks. God has spoken. But then he says God spoke in many and varied ways. Now that's fascinating when you look at it closely. The, the, the ways that God speaks, the times and places and means that he uses. I remember reading the Bible for the first time around, really reading it for the first time around 1987. That was when I made a commitment to Christ. My wife gave me this very Bible, uh, and we were baptized at the same time in, during our courtship. And then uh, you know, I just started reading the Bible. Hadn't ever read it before, you know, and I got to Numbers, and there's a, in Numbers, I think it's chapter 23, the story about Balaam and his donkey, and I was like, okay, my mind is blown. That story, when you, you get to it, if you're familiar with it, there's a, this, Balaam, I think, is the first prosperity preacher in the Bible. Because he's like, the, his whole deal is God's told him to bless the people of Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, comes to him and he wants him to use his prophetic office to curse the people of Israel. And on his way, he's on his donkey and an angel posts himself in the middle of the road to oppose Balaam, this crazed prophet, going after money. That's what he was doing. In the back of his mind is, I can get paid by using my office in ministry this way. And God posts the angel in the road. The prophet doesn't see the angel, but the donkey does. And and so the donkey won't go any further. And he gets off and beats him and gets back on him, tries to go forward. And the road keeps getting narrower until there's no way to pass. And the donkey just refuses to go anywhere. And he gets off and beats the donkey. And then the donkey starts to talk to him. That's where the Bible gets really interesting. He's like, have I ever been disposed to behave this way before? And he just starts carrying on a conversation with a donkey like it's normal. It's, I'm like, wow. And, and 
the it, it turns out that his eyes are open and he sees the angel of the Lord himself and realizes he's behaving foolishly. But it's interesting, when the Bible says God spoke in many varied ways in times past, that's one of the ways. even spoke through a donkey to the prophet. He speaks through angels because it's an angel in that very narrative. And that's what I take it to be, is a narrative telling us about God's uh, speaking to people. He spoke through Moses, prophets like Moses. spoke to Moses first half through a burning bush. He sees a bush burning. He, he says, let me come close and see why this bush is burning but not consumed. And he's told, take your shoes off your feet. The place that you're standing is holy ground. And he hears God. And then God spoke and gave Moses the commandments. And the Bible says that has there ever been anyone like that who God speaks to face to face? He takes him up into Sinai and they see thunder and rumblings and they know that something very dangerous is happening. And, and God is speaking and he spoke and he gave uh, the commandments to Moses. And he spoke through people like Samuel and David and Solomon and Nehemiah and Ezra and Micah and Malachi and all these different prophets that God uses when you read the Old Testament. He spoke to people through dreams like Joseph. You remember that Joseph was at Bethel. And while he was there, he saw a ladder going up into heaven and the angels descending and ascending. And he, he said, well, this must be the house of God. He calls it Bethel, the house of God. And he, he encounters God and he, God is doing what? Telling his story. That's what he's doing. He's telling his story through human experience and through people. And he spoke through dreams. He spoke to Joseph through dreams. He spoke to the other Joseph in the New Testament through dreams. You remember that? Joseph, the, uh, when he was afraid to marry his wife Mary because he thought, well, there's something untoward has happened here. Teenagers don't get pregnant without something going on. I know it wasn't me. And the angel shows up and, and assures him and says, take Mary to be your wife because what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So God speaks through, he spoke through dreams to people like, uh, Joseph, this Joseph, the Joseph in the Old Testament, he speaks through people who actively oppose his work at times, like Caiaphas in the New Testament. There's an interesting story where Caiaphas is the high priest, and it says that uh, after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, the people became concerned that they were going to lose their place. The Romans were going to come away and take their freedom from them, and Caiaphas says, you don't know anything at all. It's expedient that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation perish. And the Bible says he didn't speak this of his own accord, but he was the high priest and God spoke through him. God even used people that uh, opposed him to speak his truth and to speak his word. He spoke through the apostles that, that when we read the go uh, gospels and the epistles, we see that he spoke through the apostles. That's what we're reading here, an epistle where God is speaking. And they're saying this is what God is like. And he throw, uh, spoke through miraculous signs in the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea, the leadership of the people of God through the pillar of cloud by night and the uh, column of fire by uh, night and the pillar of cloud by day. 
miraculous signs that God gave uh, through Jesus as the Messiah where the, he fed 5,000 and he healed and even raised uh, others from the dead. These powerful signs that God was using to attest his word, God speaking. So God in times past through the prophets has spoken, the scripture says. He has uh, been speaking. He spoke through the miraculous deliverance of the people of Israel. He spoke through the Magi. You remember these guys that show up mystical, uh, you know, wise men from the Far East who God spoke to them and they come to Jerusalem looking for a baby and then God used them to speak to others. So God has been speaking. There, There is a trail of evidence of God's activity to reveal himself over and over again in history. He spoke in types. Maybe you've heard people talk about that before. The tabernacle was a, uh, and the ritualistic uh, setup of their worship, the process of worship. It's really fascinating when you look into all these things and how they foreshadow Jesus who was to come. The, the lamb that they offered, you remember, it had to be without spot or blemish. There were specific things that were said about it that pictured what Messiah would be. Then when Messiah comes, John says, look, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what we see is that God had been speaking, and then clearly he shows us that the one he's been speaking about is Jesus. And so the all the ornamental furniture and buildings foreshadow him, and so do the ceremonies that... And that's why when you get into Hebrews, you'll start to see that they, they, uh, those things were useful, but now Jesus has come and shown us clearly what they all meant. And so God spoke through John at Patmos and gave a vision to him. God spoke through foreign re- rulers like uh, Cyrus, the Persian, this Persian who has nothing to do with the people of God, God speaks through him and gives a decree about the specific time that he's going to send his people back into the promised land after the exile. God speaking again and again and uh, clearly giving us evidence that he's there and that he cares very much about people like you and me. That's what his speaking is all about. It's to say he's a personal God who came here in person, came here in person. That's where this finally lands, is he, him saying that not only did God speak through times past to the prophets, but in these last days he spoke to us through his son, who he's going to give us a description of. So God spoke in all these ways and then finally through Jesus. And so Jesus is uh, this clarity from God. He, Jesus tells the religious rulers of his day with uh, whom he had conflict and uh, who derided him and opposed him. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you presume that by them you may possess eternal life. These are the very words that testify about me. That's what Jesus told them. He's like, you're scouring over scripture because you think that by doing that you'll have eternal life. He said, if you paid close attention, what you'd notice is that they're trying to tell you about me. So let me keep making this point. I've made it several times, but it needs to be said again and again. 
you know, people say Jesus didn't talk about this or Jesus didn't talk about that issue, you know, cultural issues that are on the front burner for us about human sexuality or uh, about w- what gender roles are and all those things. Anytime the Bible speaks, that's Jesus speaking. Anytime the Old Testament says something, it's a flaw in people's thinking not to recognize that Jesus is eternal. Jesus didn't pop up in the New Testament. Jesus is eternal. He's always existed. God in three persons. So anything the Old Testament says, Jesus would say, amen. Jesus did say, amen. Jesus originally was there when the word of God was given to Moses and the other prophets. He already existed because he's timeless and eternal. And so anything that the Bible says, Jesus said in the Old Testament. Because Jesus preceded all of that inspired word that's there. And that's why it matters. And so it's really ignorant. I don't mean that in an insulting way. But it's ignorant to say Jesus didn't speak to this or that. It's not having a sound Christology. Christology is the idea of who is Jesus? Jesus is eternal God. He always was. In the beginning. Which beginning is that? The one from time immemorial when there was no history. That beginning, that's where Jesus is. He doesn't show up somewhere. He's just always been. And I I can't explain that. I accept it, that God is before everything else and that Jesus is God. Because that's what Scripture shows us over and over again. So that's the first idea. Jesus is God's last best word to us. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what it says here. God in various times spoke through his, in times past, finally spoke to us through his son in verse 2. He is fully God and fully man. I'm giving you basic, you know, these are the basic things. He's fully God, fully man. When he entered the world, Max Lucado says it was in the midst of sheep, manure, and sweat. I like that, how he gives us this vivid description. God came into the world as a little baby that his mother could hold in her two hands. He was conceived in the womb of a teenage peasant girl. That's what the Bible says. He is God, Jesus is God in human form. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the the idea of him coming and taking the form of a a man, the form of a servant, it says. So he, he is God in... God in human form. The word begotten, when we hear it in the Bible, sometimes confuses people. It confused me when I was a kid. Begotten sounds made. Well, all of the church fathers in the beginning said, listen, be clear, begotten does not mean made. Doesn't mean made. It has the idea of appearance in human form, the incarnation this powerful reality that's at the core of our understanding of Jesus' personality. He's not made. He just comes and invades the world in this really weird way that we could never predict. predict. That One of the songs we sang about the mystery, if you can't embrace mystery, you can't be a Christian. Because you're never going to know everything there is to know about God. We just have to go. We just have to be humbled before what God's done. That's what it really does mean to be a follower of Jesus. There are times we're just humble before what he's done. And one of the things that he did was to become human. 
God decided to have a history in human terms. In our linear experience of moments that string together days and months and weeks and years, God said, I'm going to come at a pinpoint time in history and be a part of that. That's what he did. Entered our world. Flesh and blood. If he had lived in America, they'd have issued him a social security number. But he didn't live in America. He came into the world and had a life here with people. And it had a purpose behind it. And the purpose, of course, was that he could bleed and die and suffer. First, he could live a perfect life, but then he would bleed and die and suffer. And that's what he did. He bled. And he was, he was punished as the just sacrifice for all of the sins of people so that then by faith we just look to him and we receive him and we take him as our, as our Savior and our Master. Galatians 4.4, 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus is the Son of God. That was the claim that he made. Then thirdly, Jesus is the heir of all things, the scripture says here. That's an interesting idea too. One of the things that we accept is that Jesus' claim was to be God. He said that. He said he was God. But then Psalm 2 is where this passage is getting this idea. When it says he appointed him heir of all things, who appointed him? God the Father appointed the Son to be heir of all things. So, again, a mystery that we accept is that even though there's equality in the personality of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's also order in it so that the Father could say to the Son what this psalm says. Ask me, he said, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The Father says to the Son, ask me, and I will give you the nations to be your possession. What is Jesus heir of? What's it talking about? He's the heir of people that become part of his family. Ask me and I will give you what? The nations. What are the nations? The word in the New Testament is the word we get ethnicity from. It just means people, people groups. Ask me, I'll give you from the people groups your inheritance. Who is that? people that say yes to Jesus, people that yield to him as their master, people that recognize who he claimed to be. But when it says he's the heir of all things, obviously it takes in in everything, the material world, but especially in mind here based on what the psalm says, the people. So that the Bible says things like this, that as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become children of God. He, he gave us the authority to become chil- his children. And so that's the idea that's at work here, is that through his death, burial, and be- uh, resurrection, there's fruit. Where the fruit of our repentance and our faith is what the Bible is talking about here. Jesus inherits that rich harvest. Uh, I, I was thinking about this this morning, Isaiah chapter number 53. In verse number 10, it says there that he, uh, when it talks about the suffering servant, 
it says that he will uh, prolong his days, which when we looked at that, it's talking about resurrection. It says he'll see his offspring. Do you know that Messiah had offspring? But they were the offspring of faith and repentance, and that's people like us. Anyone who will call on his name, that's his offspring. That's what it means for him to inherit everything, especially it has in mind people like us. Fourthly, Jesus is creator of everything. There's so much packed in. Look how much is packed into these few little verses here. He's spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. It's telling you, this is giving you your Christology. Who is Jesus? He's the one through whom God made the, the worlds. So, all things were made through him, John says in the Gospel of John. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, he was the, the uh, power of creation, and he holds all of creation together. And, he, and God made everything out of his spoken power. The word again, it's here. that the, There was nothing, and then God made matter. The material world, world he spoke out of his power. And the, uh, the theologians say he spoke it out of nothing. Out of nothing, except for what was in him. He brought everything into existence by his power. He's the creator. He didn't pass that power off to an agent. Jesus made the worlds and all that they contain. And it's the only reason it's appropriate for him to receive worship, and he does receive worship. In fact, when we go on in this passage later, you'll see that the Bible says, let all the angels of God worship him. Let all the angels of God worship him. Let me tell you something. If you receive worship and you're not God, that is blasphemy. And yet God said, let all the angels of God worship him. And Jesus receives worship. There's an interesting passage in the Gospel of John where the, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. Jesus is given an a, a expositing truth about himself to religious people, the religious leaders of his day. And they, he, he says, I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. And they pick up stones, and they're about to stone him. And he says, I've done many good works. For which of these good works are you going to stone me? They said, not for a good work do we stone you, but because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They heard him very clearly. You know what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, time out. No, you've misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. The Bible says he, at that point, escaped from their midst. But Jesus was affirming that what they had believed was right. When he said, I and my Father are one. He was saying, I am God. You're exactly right. And he's the creator of everything. And the Bible says, fifthly, he is the brightness of God's glory in verse number three. And it just says it exactly that way. Who is the brightness of his glory. Matthew 17, uh, this makes me think about the transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was with his disciples. <coughs> And while he was there, that it says that uh, Moses and Elijah were there with him, and suddenly his clothing was dazzling, and he, the glory of God was visible and evident in that moment. 
and what Jesus really was. You know how we sing that Christmas song that says, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity? That, that's what they were experiencing there. What had been veiled in flesh for them suddenly was brilliant and dazzling and obvious. God's glory was, that's the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of God was evident and real right there in their midst. And Peter was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> always like how he gets like that. Like what we should do is build three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I, think, I thought, yeah, that's what people always think. We need to do something. Well, what we really need to do is just be quiet and in awe because God's showing him something about who he is there. He's seeing the personality. Jesus really just revealing what he, who he in essence was in a moment for them that later on they would recall. And they would they would communicate. He's the brightness of God's glory. And sixth, and finally this morning, he is the express image of God's person. I think about what uh, for me the first time again as I read through the Bible, thinking of, we were we were doing this uh, in discipleship training. Anybody remember that back in the old days? In the old days, they kept you at church like five six hours on Sunday every Sunday. <laughs> Literally, you would uh, have discipleship training and evening worship. And during discipleship training, we were doing this very dusty video study that I'm like, oh, my gosh, I fell asleep almost every time in the middle of this. And the guy was a brilliant scholar, but it was just dry. But there was a takeaway. It was the first time I ever thought about in this way that when I see Jesus, I'm seeing God. When I read the Gospels, I see God. When I read the things that he did and the way that he was with people, that's what God's like. When he says he's the express image of his person. The word is like the way that they made a coin and they would put it in a mold and stamp the image and you would know, hey, that's Tiberius Caesar or whoever it was on the coin. It's saying he's the image, the imprint of God is in Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? Just read the Gospels and see how Jesus is with people, and there it is. This is God. That's what he's like. This is how his compassion for people comes clearly through who Jesus is and how Jesus was. And what we observe in him is a determination to rescue people and reunite them with himself. We see his broken heart. He weeps. You remember, how many times do you see Jesus in the Bible weeping? Weeping over the city of Jerusalem and the hardness of their heart and their unwillingness to, to repent and to receive him for who he was and to take his word at face value or weeping at the tomb of a friend. Or we see the emotion that he has and the life that he, he had and how God is. That's, to me, that was a, I know it's um, not a brilliant inside insight but it's a beautiful reality that when you see the gospels and you read about jesus that's god that's how god is so jesus is better than anything else a person might be tempted to insert in his place he is worth any cost and he's worth any loss anything we think i might lose this or that no you just lose it 
and, and keep Jesus because he's, he's worth any loss. He's better than what else is uh, currently primary to you. If there's something in your life that is more important than Jesus currently, he's, more, he's worth more than that. He's better than that. That's what the scripture is going to show us again and again. And his call on our life is to know him and to follow him and to love him and to serve him. And it's clear that's what his call is on your life, is to know him and to love him and follow him and serve him above everything else. That's his clear call on every person's life. And it's to keep our commitment no matter what external pressures we face. Your, your pressure will not be identical to theirs. It probably isn't that there's a religious system that you're a part of that by receiving Jesus, it puts you at odds with everybody else in the system. It might be that. If so, the Bible would say to you, it's worth it. It's worth it to choose Jesus because of who he's, who's made his claim to be. But it might be for you. There's some other pressure, but the Bible says whatever that pressure is, set it aside and, and follow Jesus. God is clear in communicating with us, and he isn't speaking for entertainment's sake. He's not just giving us something to read that we're like, oh, that's interesting. No, he's saying, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Nobody is here by accident, and God is calling us to a life that's more than wandering or wondering. It has an aim, and it has a direction and a purpose. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to ask you, is there any reason today, if Jesus isn't primary to you, is there any reason that you wouldn't be willing to say, I, I, I fully know Jesus needs to be primary to me today? And I, that's the commitment that I want to make is for him to be primary. It's not really a question when we read the Bible. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So the confession that brought us to Jesus in the beginning is Jesus is Master, Jesus is Lord. So today, as we have a time of commitment, that's the challenge that's before us. I think God doesn't just give us uh, his word for the sake of it. It's to mold us and form us and shape us. And so today, as you've listened, if there's a need perhaps for you to follow Jesus as your Savior for the first time, to, to commit to him through faith, there's an opportunity for you to do that. And, and I hope that you will. Or if it's just a matter of adjusting your life to him in obedience in a way that he's shown you, I hope you'll do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the beautiful portrait that we see in it of Jesus. And I pray as we continue to look at your word, you'll give us the courage. God, you'll give us the desire. And you'll help us to follow you and to take up our cross and to turn our back on the world and to, to be earnest as disciples and followers of Jesus. Give us courage, God, whatever courage that may take for someone to say Jesus is going to be first to me. Maybe it's the way that friends would perceive us or others might laugh at us or whatever it is. God, I pray that we'll uh, be willing to take the scorn and, and to be willing, if it meant that, to be rejected so that we could follow Jesus. 
And we commit ourselves to you in this morning in his name. Amen.